And now hear God's holy word from Revelation 17, continuing our study in this book. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of, of names of blasphemy having seven heads and 10 horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, as we open your word today, we find mysterious and uh, strange things that you have communicated to us by your spirit, by your servant, John. This is the revelation of your son, Jesus Christ. And as we come to know this book more and more, we come to know your son more and more. So guide us, we pray, by your spirit into truth and a true understanding of the things that you are communicating to us here. Guide us, we pray, and deliver us from all error. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It's been said that the whole Bible can be summarized with the phrase, kill the dragon, save the girl. When we use the word dragon, of course, we're talking about the serpent. And I'm not taking any poetic license there. The serpent in Revelation 12, as we've seen, is also known as the dragon. The dragon and the serpent are, are one, and it leaves your imagination to wander for just a minute if part of the curse on the serpent was that he would grovel in the dust. It was, was he more glorious or look more like a dragon before that? At any rate, you have this theme in the Bible, a dragon and the girl. The Bible starts in a garden paradise with a man and a woman. A dragon invades the garden. He invades the sanctuary, and the man foolishly leaves the woman exposed. He himself submits to the dragon, and by that, he plunges the whole world into the tyranny of the dragon. And from there, God puts enmity between the seed of the dragon and the seed of the woman. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman are at war. And God promises that the seed of the dragon and the head of the dragon will be crushed by the seed of the woman. And so throughout the Bible, there's real physical warfare between serpentine tyrants and the woman and her seed. Man is called to defend, to protect, to provide for the woman, the bride. And there are many, many examples throughout the scriptures. Abraham protecting Sarah, Isaac protecting Rebekah, mighty bridegroom Boaz spreading the wing of his garment over Ruth. And the woman then fights for and defends the holy offspring, either by defending her against um, 
the, the uh, deceiver by deceiving him like the Hebrew midwives or Rahab, or she engages in womanly warfare, dropping a millstone on the head of a despot or nailing an enemy's head to the ground after offering him milk. It's a very maternal picture, but she turns that into her warfare. She uses the tools of her, of her domestic service in, in warfare against the enemy to protect the holy offspring, to protect the holy seed. She defends her babies. And then she's delivered by the mighty bridegroom, Jesus, who dies for his bride, his church, by defeating that serpent on the cross, overcoming death through his own resurrection and raising up his bride to reign as queen beside him at the great wedding feast. Jesus defeats the dragon and he saves the girl. That's the narrative of the gospel, sure, simplified, but we've seen this play out in the book of Revelation. But there are points in biblical history where that all goes sideways, where it gets twisted and perverted, like in the heartbreaking story of the prophet Hosea, who marries a woman who leaves him and she becomes a prostitute. She, in the book of Hosea, is a reflection of Israel's adultery. And, and Hosea even prophesies. He says, Israel has likewise played the harlot, selling her love on every threshing floor. Those, those are the words of Hosea. Like a girl hanging around the field laborers at harvest time, giving herself up for money to everyone who will give her attention, anyone who will pay. Uh, Hosea accuses Israel of being a false Ruth. Remember, Ruth came to the threshing floor at harvest time, but uh, instead of committing herself to her noble Boaz on the threshing floor, she sells herself. She's a false Ruth. And don't miss the fact that when Hosea says she sells herself on every threshing floor, that the temple was built on a threshing floor. Hosea then is commenting also on the pollution of worship. This is multi-layered uh, symbolism here, but idolatry is spiritual adultery throughout, uh, throughout the uh, prophets. It's spiritual prostitution. I, false worship is spiritual prostitution. So Hosea's message is Mother Israel has become a harlot through idolatry. Now Isaiah uses the same language. In chapter 1, Isaiah says how the faithful city has become a harlot. Isaiah says it was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Something has changed. Jerusalem has become the harlot city who prostitutes herself in compromise with every other nation, submitting to the gods of the nations, making concessions to their cultures, rather than being the source of life to the nations, rather than bringing the empires of the world into communion and fellowship with God, they instead prostitute themselves to the world. Ezekiel probably has some of the most jarring and vivid language when he describes Israel's spiritual adultery, and he describes how obscene the behavior of the bride has become as she leaves her divine husband. And now when we get to Revelation 17, we see the woman, the archetype, the woman, Mother Israel, not engaged in warfare with the dragon. She's in league with the dragon. She's made a treaty with him. In the stupefying image we see in Revelation 17, she's not crushing the dragon's head. She's riding the dragon. She's not protecting her holy offspring. She's not defending them. She's eating her young. She's boiling them in mother's milk. And when we saw this woman last in, in chapter 12, 
The woman was clothed in glory. She gave birth to the son who kicked the dragon out of heaven. She was driven into the wilderness where she was protected while the dragon went off to make war with her offspring. But now that we check back in on her in chapter 17, what's been going on? Well, now she's riding around the wilderness on the back of the dragon. She's made up like a prostitute, drinking the blood of the martyrs. What are we supposed to make of this? It's as if John, John is so bewildered by this. He says, Mom, is that you? What's, what's happened to you? What's happened to you, Mom? What does this mean? Well, I want to look quickly this morning at the vision of the woman that John sees, very briefly, what it meant in the first century, and then, and then what do we learn from this today? What lesson can we draw from this image? And the scene flows out of the previous chapter with the final judgments on Jerusalem being depicted as seven angels pouring out seven bowls of God's wrath. And one of the bowl angels addresses John at the beginning of 17 and says, come here, I've got something to show you. Come with me. Now you remember the entire scene of the bowl judgments was an inverted day of atonement. The angels that pour out the bowls are dressed like priests. Uh, they're, they're dressed in linen like the high priest did on the day of atonement. The one day a year when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies carrying vessels of blood and incense to present them before the mercy seat, making atonement and asking forgiveness for the sins of the nation before the whole world as the high priest went into the Holy of Holies before the throne of God to, to petition for forgiveness. Now, in Revelation 15 and 16, the heavenly Holy of Holies is opened up. The ark is opened up. The lid is off the ark. The law that's within the ark, the testimony is now exposed and the people of the land are exposed to it. And the angels are flying out of there with bowls of wrath. High priest isn't going in with things. The angels are coming out with things. The lame and blemished sacrifices that Israel has been sending up for generations, along with the revolting sacrifices of the blood of the prophets and the blood of the martyrs, all of these sacrifices have been rejected by God. And now all these bowls are going to be turned upside down and, and dumped back on them. It's a reverse day of atonement that brings an end to the old world of the old covenant. And remember, Revelation is primarily about God's judgment on Jerusalem in the first century. And at the end of chapter 16, there's this scene of decreation, of, of disintegration. Now in chapter 17, extending that theme, we're still in Day of Atonement territory because remember, after the high priest left the sanctuary, after he took blood and incense into the Holy of Holies, he left the sanctuary and he laid his hands on the head of a goat, the, the scapegoat, symbolically transferring to the goat all of the sins of the nation for the whole year. And then the goat was led away into the wilderness, showing that the nation's sins have been carried away. The, the land has been preserved from defilement and judgment. But now in Revelation 17, not only have the bowls been dumped back out on us that were to be carried into the sanctuary, dumped back out onto the land of Israel, but now the goat is coming back from the wilderness. He's not a goat anymore. He's a horrible nightmare monster with seven heads and 10 horns because Israel has rejected Messiah because she's played the harlot with the nations and their gods, all of her sins have festered out there in the wilderness. They've, they've mutated, and now they're coming back amplified. This wouldn't be the first time that we saw Israel go to play the harlot with a beast in the wilderness. After the deliverance from Egypt, 
after coming through the Red Sea and then camping at the base of Mount Sinai, when Moses was at the top of the mountain, there in the wilderness, Aaron provokes the people to make a golden calf. And Exodus chapter 32 says the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. That word play has sexual connotations in the Hebrew. And throughout the Law and Prophets, Yahweh repeatedly warns Israel not to play the harlot. It's the same word, not to play the harlot with idols and demons. But she did precisely that. She's got a history of doing that. And now John sees what she's been up to. The woman is out there playing the harlot in the wilderness. So let's, let's look at this image a couple of verses at a time. Verse 17, I'm sorry, chapter 17, verse 1. One of the seven angels who had the seven, seven bowls came to me and talked with me saying, come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. She sits over the waters. Now the Holy Spirit is always hovering over the waters. At creation, the Holy Spirit hovers over the waters. He blows back the waters of the flood. He blows back the waters of the Red Sea. He hovers over the waters of Jesus' baptism like a dove. He is the rushing mighty wind who hovers over the waters of baptism at Pentecost. In both Hebrew and Greek, the word wind and the word spirit is the same word in both languages. The spirit is always hovering and blowing over, over the waters, especially when there's a new creation. The spirit is creator. And so all of this is spirit language. And yet here the harlot sits over the waters as a parody of the spirit. There are a lot of parodies and a lot of counterfeits in this image. And this is just the first one. Now, the spirit of God... When he makes a new creation, especially in the new creation of the church, he brings together Jew and Gentile and builds one house, one body in Christ. Well, this harlot is hovering over the waters to make something new all right, but it's a perverted religion. What she brings together, harlot Jerusalem, uh, apostate Israel, what she brings together is a little Caesar worship, a little, a little idolatry, a little sorcery, some works religion, some oral law tradition, just all thrown together. Sure, she brings things together, just like the Spirit brings things together, but she's bringing corrupt and profane things together to make something ugly. And, and uh, she, the, the angel says, look at this, the kings of the earth committed fornication with her. The, God positioned his people in the world as a nation of priests who were to lead the world into fellowship with God and into obedience. And in the last verse, we're not going to get to this today. We're not going to get this far today, but the last verse of 17, this is uh, the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. That's what Jerusalem was set up as. It was set up in this position to lead the nations in righteousness. But now she's led them into disobedience. She's led them into idolatry. She's led the, the, the nations into, into fornication. They have drunk the wine. The nations have drunk the wine of her rebellion, idolatry, and fornication. I've said this often. As the church goes, so goes the world. And it was the same way with Israel. When Israel thrived and prospered, all of the earth benefited. At the peak of Solomon's kingdom, the entire world was brought into glory and light. Solomon's kingdom was a light to the Gentiles, and the whole world benefited. But when God's people fail, they don't just hurt themselves. They lead the whole world into false worship, and that's what she does. Verse 3. 
So he, the angel, carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. In our gospel reading this morning, what John read just a few minutes ago, Jesus is baptized, and he's filled with the spirit, and he's driven out into the wilderness by the spirit, Mark tells us, and he's out there tempted by Satan for 40 days, and he's with the wild beasts. Why does Mark add that little thing there? He's with the wild beasts. Well, uh, there's, there's an important reason that, that Mark adds that. Jesus comes to find that the land of promise is no longer a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a wild, untamed wilderness. It's not a garden. It was supposed to be a garden. Adam and his commission was to, was to push the boundaries of the garden out to cover the whole earth. At least the land ought to be flourishing, but it's not. And because of the failure of Israel to take dominion over it, it's overrun with wild beasts because the beasts that were given to Adam haven't been tamed. Also, Satan is out there in the wilderness, Jesus finds. Jesus runs into him out there because Adam let Satan into the garden. He con- Adam conceded his kingly rule over to Satan. Now Satan is out there ruining everything in the, in the, in the howling wastelands. Satan is out there and he never, he never left. Now in Revelation, there's a similar picture that we saw and heard in Mark chapter 1. In Revelation, John is carried out to the untamed beastly wilderness by the Spirit, just as the Spirit led Jesus out there. And John also runs into Satan. But he also finds a woman. She's not supposed to be hanging around the wilderness. The fact that she's out there is a sign of her disobedience. Now, in chapter 12, the wilderness was a protection for her. And, and it's, it's supposed to be a temporary protection. In, in the Exodus, God brought his bride out of Egypt into the wilderness for a speci- uh, specific time of preparation and training. But eventually, you're supposed to move on. You're not supposed to live in the wilderness. And that first Exodus generation, because of their faithlessness, they got stuck in the wilderness. They died there. The true bride doesn't dwell in the wilderness. She has to go in the land. She's got to conquer it. She's got to dwell in the land. So the fact that she's out in the wilderness and she's still there, it's a sign of the curse. The wilderness is the habitation of demons and beasts. The woman has hung out there so long that she's grown accustomed to desert life. And she's lived there long enough to develop an intimate relationship with the dragon, the beast. She's been out there. She's been called out there by the dragon and she's been corrupted. Now, so far I've called him a dragon. I realize that in the, uh, in the text, um, the, the text says she's riding a beast, but he has seven heads and 10 horns. If you go back to chapter 12, verse three, another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns. Uh, the beast that the dragon summoned from the sea in, in chapter 13, that beast is the image of the dragon. And we identified that beast as the Roman empire. Later, that beast is going to turn on the woman. And that series of events are all, are all accounts of what happened when the Roman Empire actually um, uh, turned against Jerusalem. Uh, but there's this close association between the dragon and, and, and his image, the beast that she rides. The beast that she rides is the express image of the dragon. You can't tell where the dragon ends and the beast begins. They look so much like each other. Remember all the, all the names of Satan that we studied several weeks ago? All those names are written on the head of this beast. See, I, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which, 
was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So on the heads of this beast are written the names of Satan that we saw um, several, several chapters ago. So, so there's, this, um, there's this unholy m- mashup of, of dragon and beast in this, in this image uh, that, the, that the bride, the false bride, the former bride, the harlot rides. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead, a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. Now, in the first chapter of Revelation, we saw this glorious vision of the Lord Jesus. Remember, uh, he was robed, he was adorned with gold, and, and just like the beloved in the, king, in, in the Song of Solomon, remember how uh, the Shulamite describes her beloved. She describes him from head to toe, and that's an ancient poetic form. When we studied Song of Solomon a couple years ago, I said this many times, it's, it's an ancient poetic form called a blazon. When you describe your beloved from head to toe, your eyes are like this, your nose is like this, your neck is like this. And, and, and John uses a blazon in chapter one to describe Jesus from head to toe and back. Uh, John zooms in on particular features of Jesus himself. John describes his head, his hair, his eyes burning like fire, his feet, his hands and face. Remember, Jesus was John's friend. And this is the first time John has seen him since the ascension. So he's describing him in all of his heavenly glory. And John is good at recognizing detail. And John is good at communicating it. But now he gets to the harlot and in his blazon of the harlot, he talks about what's in her hand. He talks about what's on her forehead. He talks about what she's wearing. But besides that, there's a husk. It's it's a shell. There's no more substance than her clothes and her jewels. There's nothing there. Now, some commentators have suggested that maybe John is so chaste that he doesn't want to look her in the eye or get a good look at her face lest he be tempted to desire her. Maybe. But, but the, the, there are scant details about her actual appearance. Let's, let's, let's consider what he does actually describe to us. John describes how she is clothed, how she is adorned, what she holds in her hand, and what's written on her forehead. And I would just want to spend a minute or two on each one of those. Uh, We look at her clothes. We might be tempted to assume that her clothes are just the gaudy, trashy get-up of a harlot. But this was originally the clothing of a righteous woman. Remember, as, as she's dressed in purple and scarlet, this is an apostate nation. This is an apostate city, an apostate people not a pagan nation. In other words, this is a people who were in covenant and left the covenant. Proverbs 31, uh, the woman that's described there, she makes garments out of scarlet and purple. And she's not a harlot. Uh, she, she, She makes garments of glory and beauty. The temple veil of the second temple was described as being a tapestry of purple and scarlet. These are clothes. She wears clothes of glory and beauty. She used to be a proper lady, and it just shows what she fell from, what she left. She left something. She didn't fall away from nothing. She left and turned her back on something substantial to be dressed like this now. 
She's adorned with gold and precious stones, like the high priest. The the priest's breastplate was gold, and it was inlaid with 12 stones. But she not only has stones, she has pearls. Precious stones come from the land. Pearls come from the sea. And as we've seen many places, many times in prophetic literature, the land has to do with Israel. The sea has to do with the Gentile nations. So if she's wearing pearls, pearls are sea gems. Pearls are Gentile gems, Gentile decorations. Now, again, this is not a bad thing necessarily. Scarlet and purple are not bad things. They're glorious things. And the new Jerusalem that we're going to see in a couple of chapters, the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven has precious stones at its foundation and gates of pearl. Because the new Jerusalem, the, the, the church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. It's all the, all the riches, all the glories of the whole earth flood into the new Jerusalem and beautify it and glorify it. So what's wrong with her with the gold and the gems and the pearls is that she's a counterfeit. She makes a counterfeit house with a fragile, tenuous union of Jew and Gentile that's not based around the Lord Jesus, that's not a union engineered by the Holy Spirit. It's, a, it's, a, it's an unholy union of corruption, and it's all going to fall down. It's all going to come apart. Uh, but in her is, is all, of this, all, all of this imagery. She has a cup, and it has wine in it. She's offering false communion wine, uh, but her wine is full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication, John says. These words, abomination, filthiness, fornication. This all calls to mind specific purity laws in Leviticus regarding all manner of things that issue from the body that make a body unclean. Not only that, but abominations defile the land. Abominations pollute the sanctuary. And that's what's in her cup. She communes in disgusting, nauseating filth. Her chalice is a sewer. And then on her head was written a title. We've seen a lot of things written on a lot of foreheads in Revelation. And here, this, this is a more identity. It's, it's like in Revelation, you wear your name tag on your forehead. It's who you belong to. Who, what is your role? Here we have a series of titles. Mystery is the first one. Now, the mystery that Paul refers to in his epistles is the thing that was hidden in the past that is now revealed in Jesus. And what was hidden in the past that's revealed in Jesus is that God intended to bring together Jew and Gentile into one new humanity in the church. That's the, that's the mystery that's revealed that Paul refers to. Now, the harlot has a counterfeit mystery. It's a mystery of how she's trying to do the same thing, this unholy fornicating union of Herod and high priest and Caesar and to bring all these things together. There's also the mystery of apostasy that we're going to consider in just a few minutes. How, how does a people leave a place of privilege and blessing and this incredible abundance of grace? How do they leave and spurn the outpouring of God's love and providence to become this? It's a mystery indeed. Mystery, Babylon the Great. Bab-el in the Hebrew 
And Babylon in the Greek means gate of God. And Jerusalem was to be the true gate of God, the true tower of Babel, the true connection point between heaven and earth. You go to Jerusalem, you go to the temple to be connected to God, to be in fellowship with him, for him to bless you and for you to, you to receive his blessing. But again, this is all perverted. She's She's the false Babel. She's become like the old Babylon in rejecting God. So she has become the mother, not of the holy seed here, but she's the mother of harlots and the mother of the abominations of the earth. We might tend to sympathize with her and feel sorry for her because she's been uh, oppressed and abused, but that's not the image we see her here. She is the source of harlotry. She is the source of abomination. You want sickness? Go to her. You want corruption? You want rot? You want filth? This is where you go. She is marketing these things. She is the source of it. So the whole picture here is this great big counterfeit and distortion. She's a false bride offering false communion, seated not on a heavenly throne, but she's seated on a beast robed in desecration, bejeweled in parody. The head, uh, uh, the, the title over her head is a counterfeit title. It's a counterfeit of the title that was over Jesus' head on the cross. From a distance, she may look like the woman that we knew, but you get close enough to her, you get close enough to smell what's in her cup, and you get close enough to read what's written on her forehead, and you say, oh, I don't know this woman. I, 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 don't, I don't know who this is. And you see that she's nothing but rot and death. The faithful mother went into the wilderness in chapter 12, and she comes out in chapter 17 as a woman that we don't know, a woman emerging from the wastelands as a harlot riding a dragon, riding a beast. Verse 6, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. What does she have also in her cup? The blood of the saints and the blood, the blood of the martyrs. She doesn't protect her holy offspring. Once again, as I said in the beginning, the woman throughout the biblical narrative, she protects the children. She defends her offspring. But this one, she doesn't protect them. She devours her offspring. And John is beside himself with bewilderment. He's seen a lot of strange things. But this is definitely one of the most mind-boggling. And an angel is going to come to him and help him figure things out. And we'll save that for next time. It's not difficult to understand what's being displayed here. Israel has given birth to the Messiah, but she's been seduced by the serpent to disbelieve and distrust her own son. The political and religious powers of Judaism and Jerusalem, Herod, the priests, all of the elites, they play the harlot with Rome. They crawl into bed with Satan and the empire and all the demons and all the idols that are brought with it. They institutionalize paganism because they desire power over holiness. They seek self-preservation over pleasing God. They're holding on with a vice-like grip to the old world that is passing away. They're digging in their heels, refusing to enter the new creation with their new king, Jesus. You see, it's dangerous and it's scary if you let go of your lives and follow Jesus. If you, if you disrupt the status quo, you're going to lose your national identity and your power. And so instead of following Jesus, they prostitute their nation to Rome 
and they turn around and persecute the saints. They execute their Messiah. They send out Saul breathing out threats against the church. And when Saul is sent out by the Sanhedrin, he has the authority to kill Jews who follow Jesus. So Jerusalem became a prostitute mother who cannibalizes her own children. The whole thing is a disgusting, stomach-turning image. And Jesus wants us to look at it. He, he said, this is a revelation, Jesus said, I want you to see this. Let's not forget that this book is an unveiling, an exposure of what things look like behind the scenes. Because on the surface, in the first century, Israel doesn't necessarily appear to be this awful creature that we see here. You need the eyes of faith to see what's going on. Because evil, evil doesn't always appear repulsive. Wickedness is very often alluring and pleasing to the eyes. It's seductive. Evil whispers. It, it makes promises. And John records this image to warn the churches against being seduced by this harlot. In a, in a certain sense, she's overwhelming. She's impressive. You may be tempted. I better stay on her good side. I better not, I better not cross her, lest my blood end up in her cup. In a certain sense, she is overwhelming. So you must get in good with her, appease her. And John says, don't fall for it. Don't be tempted to, to make agreements and treaties and, and fall in with this. John says, she's a harlot riding a dragon. Jerusalem, the city, is a harlot riding a dragon, and she's riding the dragon headlong into destruction. Jesus and, and his servant John show us this picture and shows the churches of the first century this picture to say, you aren't going to reform this. You can't work from the inside to change this. It's over. I want you to see what Jesus is judging in these bowl judgments. This is what's at war with you. The holy city, the prize of all the earth, is now a cannibalistic harlot. And what this teaches us a couple thousand years later is that just as Lady Israel was seduced by the serpent, just as Lady Israel was led into the wilderness corrupted, cut off, judged. So likewise, individuals and churches today can really and truly be led into unbelief. This image, this picture points to the reality of apostasy. I use that word a lot. I want to define my terms. Apostasy is abandonment of Christ. Apostasy is leaving the faith. And this brutal picture serves to warn us against the very real danger of walking away from the faith through hardness of heart and unbelief, well, just like those who were delivered from Egypt. That's the, uh, that's, that's the, 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 the pinnacle of, of an example that, that keeps coming up in, in the scriptures. The people were delivered from Egypt. They saw the signs and the wonders. They heard God speak at Sinai. They ate manna. They drank water from the rock. Their shoes didn't ever wear out. And they didn't make it into the promised land. They got all these blessings and benefits. They really and were truly delivered from Egypt. And Hebrews 3 says their corpses fell in the wilderness. You, you may have heard somewhere that all the warnings about falling away and apostasy in the New Testament, they're all theoretical. They're all hypothetical. That it's impossible to fall away like Israel fell away. And yet, We've seen the contrary. We see people who act like Christians, who then abandon the truth and abandon the church. There are Old Testament examples and New Testament examples. King Saul was filled with the Spirit. He prophesied, 
And I don't believe that King Saul is in heaven today. What happened there? There's a, there's a mystery to it. We don't have all the answers. Judas was with Jesus. He, Judas, there, nobody has ever had a better pastor than Judas. I mean, he, Judas had the best pastor that ever walked the earth. Judas likely cast out demons and worked miracles with the rest of the 12, or else he would have been really stuck out from the beginning. But Judas was there. I don't think Judas is resting at the feet of Jesus today. What happened? What happened there? I want to be clear. God's election of individual believers to eternal life is unchangeable. He will save everyone he has sovereignly called. However, you and I don't have x-ray machines that show which hearts are regenerate. All we have to look at is fruit and behaviors and outward signs of faithfulness in word and deed and doctrine and practice. And the reality is that there are people in churches in covenant who were once brothers who fall away and now we're required to view them as unbelievers unless they repent. And this is not theoretical. This is not theoretical for Paul. When he, when he talks about this in Romans 11, he writes to Gentile believers about how God has pruned Israel. And he says this, you will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said, because of unbelief, they were broken off and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fell severity, but toward you goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also would be cut off. Continue, he says. Abide in Christ. Respond faithfully to his good gifts. Don't presume that you're fine when you sin, repent. And that's, that's not works salvation. That's not, that's not saving yourself. That's looking to Jesus for his works by faith. And if you stop doing that, if you stop trusting in Jesus, what hope is there? Jesus has stiff warnings for the churches in, um, in the first couple of chapters of, of Revelation. In chapter one, verse five, the church at Ephesus, he says, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And then he says to the church at, at Pergamos, repent or else I will come to you quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a seductive harlot in Thyatira over in uh, chapter two, verse 20, that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And Jesus says, I will cast her into a sick bed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds, I will kill her children. Uh, over there in the church of Sardis, he says there, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief and you will not know what hour I come upon you. With the church at Philadelphia, he says, behold, I'm coming quickly. And then of course, in the church at Laodicea, he says, I wish you were cold or hot, but because you're lukewarm and neither cold or hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. These are not hypothetical or theoretical propositions. Jesus really will break off the unfaithful branches. He really will remove the lampstands. He really will spew them out of his body. And what makes apostasy so tragic is this, that for a church to depart from the faith or for an individual to leave the body of Christ is forsaking a real relationship. 
broken branches are broken off the tree. They're not, they're not scattered on the side of the road. Churches are spewed out of the body. And we're inclined to say, well, you know, they really were never part of anything. So they never left anything because they really didn't have it in their heart. But is that how the scriptures speak? Hebrews 6 says those who fall away were once enlightened. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And what this vision of the harlot Israel shows us is that the apostate rejects a real relationship. This woman used to be a mother and a bride and beloved, not, not some random crazy lady running around the woods. Heathens and unbelievers never have any real kind of relationship, but the apostate is one who has an outward visible connection to the Lord and then deliberately turns away from the Savior's love from a real relationship. Now, obviously, looking back at that relationship, we can say there was, there was no perseverance unto eternal life. That's correct. But there was, while they were in covenant, a relationship Nonetheless, this Israel who we see in Revelation 17, this Israel was married to Yahweh. She once loved her Lord and she leaves him. In Jeremiah 3, Yahweh says, I gave her a certificate of divorce. <laughs> Yahweh doesn't divorce heathens. He doesn't divorce pagans. He was never in covenant with them, but he was in covenant with Israel. So it was a real relationship. And when Israel fell away, she became this courtesan of the devil and an enemy of righteousness that we see in Revelation 17. Now, the right response to this is, is not to get wrapped up in a disproportionate anxiety over the potential that you or I could suddenly just fall away from the faith unawares. You know, anytime this subject comes up, there are some very soft-hearted people who begin to fear and say, wait a minute, I sinned this morning. Am I an apostate? Oh, I, 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 I'm tempted. I struggle with temptation. I must be an unbeliever. And the response to that is, wait, hold on a minute. Are you convicted of your sin? Do you repent when you sin? Do you fight the devil and temptation? That's evidence that you're thriving because that's what Christians do. Apostates don't repent. They don't care. No one just wakes up one morning and says, well, I'll be. I guess I'm just an apostate. Look at that. I just don't believe anything anymore. That's not, that's not what happens. It's a long, tedious process of hardening your heart failing to repent that puts you in a really treacherous position. So the response, proper response is, don't do that. Don't do that. Rather, sincerely and genuinely trust the Lord and don't turn away from him. Don't doubt his word or his promises. Don't ignore his commands. Don't act like he isn't king of everything. Don't fail to repent of your sins. Don't treat worship like a joke. Keep the faith. Look to Jesus. Hebrews 3 rehearses Israel's disobedience and says, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. 
That's the answer. Do not harden your hearts. Individually, corporately, Revelation 17, this is a corporate apostasy. This is a people. This is a city. This is a nation that departs. And to keep that from happening, we exhort each other to keep the faith. Whole churches go bad. And so that's a reality. The, the apostasy of entire churches and denominations is something we've seen. So let's not let that happen. Hold the line. Don't compromise. Look at this picture and say, I don't know what that is, but I don't want to be that. Don't play the harlot. Be faithful to the mighty bridegroom who kills the dragon and saves the girl. We'll unpack more of this the next time we get together in Revelation. But now let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and the way that you have revealed these things to us as warnings, not hypotheticals, but real warnings. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would grant us soft hearts. Do not let us harden our hearts against you, but keep us sensitive to the conviction of, the, of, of your Holy Spirit and continue to direct our steps in love to the Lord Jesus. We trust him completely not on our own works, not on our own abilities, not our own gifts, not our own merits, but him entirely. And so we pray that you would strengthen and confirm your calling in us every day and keep us uh, exhorting each other, encouraging each other in the faith. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.